Well, I forgot to grab my clicker. I've gotten kind of accustomed to preaching without a PowerPoint for just a bit, but here we are. All right, so the title of this morning's message is Pardon Me. And we begin with a little bit of a Tennessee history lesson. If any of you remember Governor Ray Blanton. And uh, Ray Blanton was governor of the state of Tennessee from 1975 to 1979. And a story that came out in the newspaper in Knoxville, the Knoxville News Sentinel a couple of years ago, kind of went into details about how in that era of state government that it was a bit of a free-for-all that it was kind of notoriously slimy back in that era, that apparently everything was for sale. You needed a liquor license, sure, just put the right amount of cash in the right person's hands. You need a paving contract, not a problem, just put the right amount of cash in the right person's hands. Everything was for sale, and as Blanton's time as governor of the state of Tennessee drew to a close, apparently pardons were for sale. Now, in other words, people were getting out of jail, some for violent and heinous crimes. Uh, a pardon, you needed a relative pardon from jail, just put, say, $100,000 cash uh, in the right person's hands who could get it to the governor. And uh, there was even a song about I referred to the song a couple of years ago when I was preaching, but it was, I dug up the lyrics. Uh, you can find just about anything on the internet, can't you? Uh, it was set to the, to the tune of Chattanooga Choo Choo. And so it starts out, pardon me, Ray, are you the cat that signs the pardons? Since you're an old friend of mine, just put your name on the line. And then it says, uh, take a $100,000, slip it under the door. Don't mention any names and I won't say what it's for. And then, uh, and then the, the end of it is, pardon me, Ray, since you'll be going out of office, no matter what people say, go on and sign anyway. And so uh, that was how the, uh, the Blanton administration closed out. As a matter of fact, members of his own party were so upset by what was going on in the closing days of his office. And his own party controlled the state senate and the state house at that time. And it was a governor of the opposition party that was coming into office. And so they arranged for Lamar Alexander to take the oath of office three days early just to get Blanton out of the governor's mansion. Okay, that's how slimy things had gotten at the end of his administration. Now, we look at what the definition of pardon is. The action of forgiving or being forgiven for an error or offense. He obtained pardon for his sins is one example given here. And so similar words or synonyms for a pardon are forgiveness, absolution, remission, clemency, mercy, and lenience. 
And so, yes, we are talking about forgiveness today. And I made the comment in my Sunday school class, I said, I actually wonder, do I talk about forgiveness too much? And their immediate reply was, well, no. It's something we have to learn to do have to be reminded of and I discovered that I had not talked about forgiveness in a sermon since October this past fall and so there may not be any groundbreaking or new material that you hear about today but we are reminded today of something that we all need to be aware of and that is not the option of forgiveness but the necessity of forgiveness in the Christian walk. And so we turn to Ephesians chapter 4 and begin with verse 25. Uh, Here Paul writing to the folks in Ephesus, and these are folks he knew well. You can read, I believe it's Acts chapters 19 and 20. Uh, We read uh, uh, about Paul's time uh, in Ephesus. And we read about how he had traveled and then went uh, away from Ephesus, but then he had come back and was close enough that he sent for the Ephesian elders. Uh, He sent for them to come to where he was. And uh, this is where they have a time uh, as Paul departs on a ship. Uh, they're, They're on the shore and they are weeping together. And uh, if you read in Ephesians 3, there's a section known as Paul's Prayer for the Ephesians. And you can see uh, the genuine connection and uh, the heartfelt depth that there was in this relationship between Paul and the people of Ephesus. And so we read in here as he's describing these uh, ideas of Christian living. Verse 25, Therefore each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger do not sin, do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. We stop right there because Paul understands human nature. He knows what it's like to be angry. He knows what it's like to do things or say things that you normally wouldn't do in other circumstances when you're overcome by anger. Our prisons are full of people who know what it's like to do something in anger that you wouldn't have done otherwise. In just a moment, anger can overtake us. And so Paul is saying, don't give the devil a foothold that you deal with your anger. Before the sun goes down at night, whatever anger you've got, deal with it. Don't let it fester. Don't let it keep on building. Go ahead and deal with it. Get it out of the way. Don't give the devil any satisfaction. Verse 28, anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. 
Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Paul says, whatever it is you got... Get rid of it. All the stuff, all the stuff that you're doing wrong, focus on that. Get rid of it. Change your life. Do better. And then he concludes this section, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. And so with this instruction, he kind of goes a little further, doesn't he? He kind of gives it that context or that explanation. He says, forgive. And he knows how hard and how challenging forgiveness can be. And so he goes on and offers that explanation, saying, forgive each other just as in Christ God forgave you. And he's reminding us, isn't he, church? He's saying, don't forget, God has forgiven you your sins. Be willing to forgive other people. As a matter of fact, in what Hayden read this morning from Matthew 6, what we know is the Lord's Prayer. If you notice, and I've brought this out at least once before. It says, forgive us our sins as we have forgiven. It's framed in the past tense, isn't it? As we have forgiven those who have sinned against us. As if to say, God, I don't go before your throne of mercy asking for forgiveness without having first forgiven the people who have done something wrong against me. And so it is so important that we be people who know how to forgive. I want to read a, an excerpt from a story that was in the Christian Chronicle some years ago. It says that the United States has the largest prison population in the world with 2.2 million adults behind bars. The United States also consumes more coffee than any other nation, 45 million pounds of coffee every year. As a non-coffee drinker, it's y'all, it ain't me, okay? But yeah, uh, 45 million pounds of coffee every year. Uh, when we go to Honduras, there is always um, there's always one big tub, Jack Vanderpool, that heads up our trip uh, out of Georgia. Jack always gets one of those big plastic totes, and he goes to a local grocery store there in the city of Trujillo, and he loads it with coffee because, and he gives it as gifts. There, you know, people that like to have, have their own grinder and like to pour in those coffee beans and grind their own coffee beans. Uh, and so it, it sounds like a lot of work to me, uh, but if, if I, some people that are just into coffee uh, enjoy doing that. Uh, and so, uh, but he always makes sure to get all these bags of coffee. And, I, and one time I, I stored it in my uh, hotel room. 
He said, Greg, you got room in your, you're by yourself, you got room for this? I said, sure, Jack, I'll take it. And so I'm hauling this big tote full, packed full of bags of coffee beans. I got to tell you, it smelled great. Uh, I just can't handle the bitter taste of that stuff. But nonetheless, uh, it's 45 million pounds of coffee a year. He says, those two facts may seem completely unrelated. The fact that we lead the, the world in the, the largest prison population and the most consumption of coffee. He says, but to a Christian businessman from Wheaton, Illinois, they provided a creative way to do something he loves and minister to former inmates in his community. He said it all started when Pete Leonard, a businessman involved with a local software company, started roasting coffee out of his garage. About the same time, Leonard watched as a family member fruitlessly searched for work after serving time in prison. Leonard says that he'd always get interviews, but the moment that he had to check that box that said that he was a convicted felon, that that was the end of the story, interview over. And so uh, he realized that there is, uh, that, that his relative problem was typical of a very large problem, that many ex-cons can't find work, which drives them back into uh, underemployment or unemployment or even back into crime. And so he said over breakfast one morning that Leonard and two close friends took a napkin and sketched out an idea of starting a business that would hire ex-offenders. But Leonard was also committed to making excellent coffee. He said, if the coffee's bad, you're not going to buy it again. So Leonard and his friends started Second Chance Coffee Company, which markets under the brand I Have a Bean. Leonard and his wife Debbie invested thousands of dollars of their own money to launch the business, and Leonard eventually left his job to pursue it full time. Today, Second Chance makes quality coffee while hiring mostly ex-convicts. For a mom and pop uh, business, uh, or for in this case for a mom and dad coming out of prison, that means being able to be a provider and pulling the family out of the cycle of poverty. According to Debbie Leonard, for her and her husband Pete, it also meant realizing that your security in God is not in your bank account. And so I read that excerpt from that story to you just to say that that's an example of somebody practicing forgiveness. Showing people that you know what, there are lots of companies that aren't going to hire you. But we are. We are going to give you a second chance. And that brings us to Matthew chapter 18. We're going to spend some time here. In Matthew chapter 18, we begin with our brother Peter asking Jesus a question. Verse 21, then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Now, it's important to understand that in... Old Testament scripture, we read in the book of Amos, we read in the book of Job, that three times, extending forgiveness three times, was sufficient according to Old Testament scripture. 
And so Peter is probably feeling kind of generous here by posing the question to Jesus and saying, Hey, what if I'm willing to forgive a brother or sister who sins against me seven times? Because he's more than doubled what Old Testament scripture, the scripture of their day that's available, he's more than doubled what it prescribes as forgiveness. Now, Jewish rabbis in their, in their uh, collection of teachings known as the Mishnah, they said that twice was enough. In other words, that you go, once somebody has sort of like a three strikes and you're out idea, that you forgive, you, you know, someone sins against you, you forgive them. They sin against you again, you forgive them. After that, you wash your hands of them. That, that, that's sufficient. You know, you've done what you can do. They're obviously not going to change their ways that you're no longer responsible for forgiving them. So that's why I know that him coming at Jesus and saying, hey, seven times, seven times, and he's probably in his mind thinking, man, I am over the top generous here, going with seven. And so then Jesus replies with an answer that I'm sure Peter and the others could not have possibly been prepared for. Verse 22, Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought into him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. Now it was very common in that day that if you owed someone money, then they could demand that it come due. And if you couldn't pay it, then they could have members of your family sold into slavery and use those proceeds to recoup at least part of the debt. Now, the NIV translates it now, 10,000 bags of gold. I like the older idea of 10,000 talents. And that's probably what some of your Bibles say this morning, is that it's 10,000 talents. And so, to put this in perspective as to what he owes, I know one commentary writer that, uh, that I was reading said, it's kind of hard to put a number on this, but they relate it to what wages would have been at that time, and uh, that time being when he wrote this, 2001. He said, putting this into our context today, and so it was a commentary written just over 20 years ago, and he says, you know, looking at what our minimum wage is today, and somebody working a 40-hour week, and anyway, he came up with a number and uh, of what just one talent was. And he came up with $247,000. Okay, now it's not one talent though, right? It's going to multiply that by 10000 So I get out my handy-dandy uh, smartphone and I pull up an inflation calculator. 
adjusted for inflation, $247,000 in 2001 is worth what today? That's $421,000 in 2023. So then you multiply 420-something thousand dollars times 10,000, and you're just in excess of $4.2 billion. Billion with a B. So to get an idea of what kind of sum this common day laborer owes in Jesus' story... Now, Jesus is no stranger to hyperbole, to giving people these sort of over-the-top, crazy examples. And so he says, yeah, a guy comes in and he owes somebody money. The guy is settling accounts. He's calling in due what is owed to him. And so the first guy owes him $4.2 billion. His name is not Bill Gates or Warren Buffett. You know, it's not Mark Zuckerberg, so he can't write a check for $4.2 billion. He's a guy that works down the street making a modest but barely livable sum of money for him and his family. And so you get the idea. There's no way possible this guy is ever going to be able to pay any of this back. And so verse 28, verse 26, excuse me, at this the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. Why? Because... His plea was preposterous, right? If you'll be patient with me, I'll come up with $4.2 billion. Well, no. Of course he can. And so the guy is, he's got a heart. And he says, hey, get up off your knees. It's okay. I'm canceling the debt. It's all good. Go on your merry way. Don't worry about any of that $4.2 billion. Verse 28, but when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed them and began to choke him. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged with him, and begged him, be patient with me, and I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Now, if you've been in church for any length of time, you've read this before, you've heard this preached before. But I wanted to dig up a little further context about what was really owed here. So in today's dollars, it'd probably be about 6800 bucks in today's dollars. So you see what Jesus is doing. In his story, he's contrasting the $4.2 billion debt that was forgiven and the 6800 bucks that he was willing to choke somebody over and have him thrown into prison. And of course, we know where Jesus is going with this, right, church? He's saying God has forgiven you big stuff. Holy Scripture shows us 
that God forgave David of adultery and murder. New Testament Scripture shows us that God forgave Paul for rounding up Christians in the name of God and ready to have them thrown in jail. He he forgave Paul for standing there and holding everybody's outer garments while they stoned Stephen to death, taking innocent blood. And yet he forgave them that. And he's saying, but you all, you all, how often do you hold a grudge because somebody didn't speak to you? How often do you hold a grudge because somebody borrowed some money and you asked for it back and they didn't have it and you wrote them off? All the while, our Bible's telling us that when we, as children of God, lend money, it's in what manner, church? Without expecting anything in return. If you can't do that, don't loan the money. Jesus saying, how many times has my Father in heaven forgiven you for your thoughts and your deeds, for the things you've said that have hurt people, broken their hearts, and yet you, you're not willing to forgive people for similar things, or in many instances, far, far less offensive circumstances. And so he goes on to say, Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. And then Jesus sums up the story this way, this parable. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. That church family, if we think forgiveness is an option, we're not reading Matthew 18 through a clear lens, are we? Because Jesus is saying... Listen, you want to be forgiven, then you need to be willing to forgive. He's reminding us that the measure that will be used to forgive us by God when He serves as our righteous judge is the same measure of forgiveness that we are willing to extend to other people. You want to know how to forgive? Get out a sheet of paper and draw a line down the middle of it. And start listing everybody that has ever wronged you. Just list them on that one side of the paper. 
everybody that's ever wronged me in my entire life. Go back to your childhood and just list them all. List every single one of them. But then, on the other side of the page, say, God, help me to remember everybody that I've ever wronged. Everyone that I've been rude to. Everyone that I have said things about. Everyone that I have held a grudge against. All those people that I've wronged. And you list them on that that other side of the paper. And what does this exercise do for us, church? It gives us perspective. It gives us perspective that our hands may not be as clean as we would like to think. That we have been guilty at times of hurting other people, of wronging other people, of sinning against other people. And go back. Go back to your childhood. Go back to those middle school years, the high school years, the college years, the years as a young adult. Think about everything you've done wrong. Think about all the ways that God has forgiven you. And then I think with that exercise, we are all a bit more prepared to forgive other people. We think about what we're guilty of and we think about what God has forgiven us for. Then we are far more prepared to be able to say, okay, yeah, I can forgive these people because I know what I've done to other people in the course of my own life. That's an exercise that every one of us need to take part in to grant us that perspective of who it is that we need to forgive. Matthew 6, 14 and 15. Yes, if you forgive other people for the things they do wrong, then your Father in heaven will also forgive you for the things you do wrong. Praise God that He issues pardons and that His pardons are never for sale. That no amount of cash is what buys us a pardon. It is our belief that Jesus Christ is the Son of God that He shed His blood on the cross so that our sins could be forgiven, so that we could be pardoned. And church family, in realizing that and the depth of that glorious event, that we should be people who live our lives willing to forgive others. Not of some things, but of everything. I'm not going to stand here and pretend that it's easy. But I will stand here and proclaim that it is absolutely necessary.
and we begin by saying, God, help me to have a heart that is willing to forgive others as you have forgiven me. If you're here this morning and you are not yet a child of God, we invite you into this fold. We invite you into this family. We invite you into this kingdom. That you can be someone who says, yes, I do believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and we make available to you the waters of baptism. That you leave all the past down in that water and you rise up a new creature. And that you begin a new walk with God. If you're with us this morning and you've got something that's weighing on you and you would appreciate the prayers of this body, then we offer the invitation for that reason as well. Let's stand together and sing this song.